that's that's definitely the famous cliff. Everyone talks about it. You know, that's that's it's pretty harsh. I, I don't know what to, I've never heard of another state so far having that concept because it is all of it. It's not the amount that exceeds. As you said, it's your entire estate. If it goes over, it becomes taxable. Welcome to the Wealth and Law podcast. I am Brent Nelson. And per usual, I am joined by Rachel Sass. Rachel, how are you? I'm doing pretty good. How are you? Doing pretty well myself. It is uh, mosquito season at my house, uh, which for anybody who lives in the desert, um, that's not usual. But I have a neighbor who has uh, uh, an unusual amount of water and plants in their backyard. And so every year when it warms up, the mosquitoes, they visit my house because I'm right next door. Oh, no. Yeah, Yeah, that's the worst. Yeah. So there's this little window of time in the spring where in the evening the weather is quite pleasant uh, before it is summer and then it's just always hot. And at the end of that springtime period, when the weather is still quite pleasant in the in once the sun starts to go down like 4 35 o'clock, if you're like me and mosquitoes love you, then being outside is not the best thing. Mm -hmm. So we're in that period of the year right now. Uh, Oh no. I remember I went to, this was way years and years ago. I went to a a house party and the uh, individual who was hosting it, they had a pond in their backyard. The house was huge, absolutely gorgeous house, big backyard. And it was so pretty to see this gorgeous pond. They had mm-hmm. like fountains and everything. But then it was held at sunset. And it was right during this period of time. I think I came home with like 25 mosquito bites oh, no. all over. And, and of course, right, it's, it's it's warm out. So I had like shorts on or something. And just my legs just had been eaten alive. It's like, no, oh, why? That's horrible. It's, it's bad. Yeah, the mosquitoes love me. They love me. They do not love my wife. They don't. <laughs> she she'll go unscathed and I'm being attacked like I'm the last supper or something. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty bad. Oh man. She's gotta stick by you. You're you're her shield, apparently. Yeah, apparently. Apparently. Well, uh speaking of places that are warm and muggy in the summertime, uh, I thought that today we could talk about New York, the big apple. And I didn't think there'd be anybody more appropriate to do that with than our own Deborah Plum. Deborah is a lawyer in our law firm, somebody who actually works with us. So unlike pretty much everybody else who's ever been on the show, be- beside the two of us, she's actually worked with us. Uh, Deborah is a, a trust and states lawyer slash tax attorney. She is a double Columbia graduate, Columbia undergrad, Columbia JD. So not too many of those milling around uh, in our part of the world. And Deborah, we appreciate you being with us. So thanks for joining. I'm happy to join. And I'm also one of the lucky people that actually never gets bitten by mosquitoes. No. Oh, or if I do, lucky. they don't even itch. Really? Oh, man. Do you just yes. lord that information over everybody else around you? I really do, actually. You know, I've gone you on should. a few camping trips and gone to parties in upstate New York where it's very humid in the summer. And there I am. I don't even know I have a mosquito bite. Mm. Days later, still mm. doesn't itch. How nice. I remember we were we were in Hawaii one time and we were at this like outdoor market um, and we were looking at stuff and I am literally being eaten alive. I mean, they're like swarming me. Okay, and my wife is like, well, do you want to do you want to go down there and see that other booth? And I turned to her. I'm like, I I can't. I'm literally like I'm dying here. I'm they're They're just chewing me to pieces. 
She's like, what? What do you mean? What is? Like the mosquitoes. She's like, there's mosquitoes? Like, yes. So people like you, Deborah, you don't understand what it's like to live with the suffering that people like Rachel and I do. You know, I have to say I'm pretty grateful for that. (laughs) (laughs) I actually read that it's a a type of allergy. It's actually a reaction. It depends on your blood type and whether you're actually allergic to the bites. So Mm. what can I say? Wow. You're a, you're a lucky one. So you should enjoy that. And I, I, I actually wholeheartedly agree. You should lord that over everybody else who is not so fortunate. I think it's appropriate. Well, uh, I thought, unless, uh, unless anybody thinks otherwise with strong opinions, to the contrary, um, that maybe we could look at New York and New York City from a tax lens. Um, for anybody who's a little bit unaccustomed, uh, New York and New York City in particular have very uh, unique, I, sh- I would say, uh, tax rules. Um, if you've never had the pleasure of dealing with them, then some of this might come as a little bit of a surprise, or you may have just heard anecdotally that these things exist. Um, so maybe we can tackle it from one, from the income tax perspective, because they're unique little income tax rules. Um, and then from the estate tax perspective, and then perhaps we can talk about, you know, so if somebody finds themselves in one of these two systems that can sometimes be a little painful, you know, are there ways to do some planning uh, and maybe reduce the pain? So uh, if that makes sense, then uh, Deborah, why don't you at least give us sort of a, a high level view of the income tax structure in the state and then and then maybe focusing a little bit on the city itself. Sure, yes, my hometown. Not only am I a double Columbia, but I was born and raised in Manhattan, the big city, so <laughs> Yeah, so you could you couldn't avoid going to uh, a Manhattan school. They probably would have just kicked you out. Arguably, I should have avoided it, but that's another story. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, New York, for income tax purposes as a state, is actually not so different from a lot of other states, or at least not in the Northeast, I would say, in that they have the concept of resident versus non-resident. And so if you're a resident, of course, you are subject to income tax, no questions asked, doesn't matter the source, doesn't matter anything else. And then, of course, there's also the non-resident concept. But before then, um, residents are are defined really by the domicile, sort of traditional word. If you have a place or an abode, full-time resident, that's how it's determined whether you're a resident and living there. But even if you don't have a domicile there, you can still be counted as a resident. Actually, something I'm trying very much to avoid in the coming years, considering a lot of my connections to New York State. But uh, the the key is to really stay out of the state for 182 days. You know, they tell you to not ever hit the 183-day mark. So, because you can be deemed a resident if you are, you will really be deemed a resident if you are in the state for 100. They say 184. Most accountants tell you 183 is not good. So. That's when you wind up really being taxed on all of your income. That that actually goes also resident can be an individual, it can be in a trust, it could be in a state, um, any real taxpayer that you think of. And then you are required uh, to to file a tax return. Although if you are a non-resident, you also have to file a tax return um, and an estate tax return as well. You can talk about that later, but um, that's really about property that's that's located in the state. Um, so that's that's a very sort of high level concept of where those taxes come from. Well, let's pause there for just a second, because that's a really it's a really interesting concept that I think most people would be 
reasonably familiar with, at least from the perspective of like domicile, you know, think of somebody who has changed their residence from one state to the next. So they go to the next state, they buy or rent a place to live. That's like their permanent place to live. They move all their stuff there. They change employment. They they register their vehicles in that state. They get a driver's license. They do all the things that you would typically do to show that you're now a resident of the new place, not the old place. So that's sort of this like domicile concept. Then uh, it sounds like New York, like uh, many, many other places, also has sort of an objective standard where if you're there too many days during the year, you can be treated as a resident in that place. Okay. So for example, in the state of Arizona, it's a 220 day rule, not a 183 day rule, which is a six month rule. In the state of Colorado, it's a six month rule, 183 day rule. So depending on what state, they may have slightly different measures, but you could, for example, be domiciled in one state and present in the other state enough days to be treated as a resident in both places. And that's a really difficult position to be in. Because then what happens is both states, so say Arizona and New York, believe that you must file a resident tax return in the first instance in that state reporting all of your income from all over the world everywhere to that revenue agency and paying all of your taxes there. And it creates some sort of nightmarish uh, scenarios that hopefully your accountant is well equipped to try to negotiate, but it's a very, very challenging uh, situation to be in. Then to then sort of take that scenario in in a lot of states, if you trip up on one of these these days, number of days rules, there's no way out of it. There's not like a way to be like, well, I accidentally did it. So therefore don't count me as a resident. There's not, there's no fallback rule. Arizona is definitely that way. Colorado's that way. Uh, it kind of sounds like New York is that way too, that once you trip up on these objective standards of residency, you're kind of stuck with it. That's that's definitely the case. And actually, it's it's a pretty high standard when you're trying to have abandoned prior treatment as either someone who was domiciled, as someone who was domiciled, especially. So in my case, it's very, very, very real right now. I moved here in October. And the question about whether I truly abandoned my New York domicile is something I have to prove with clear and convincing evidence. So it's every element of abandoning it so much down to a car. I have a car with New York plates. I have to change that. My voter registration, the fact that I own a home here is not necessarily enough. It could be anything could trip it up because they really want to make sure that they're not losing out on those tax dollars and also to make sure that they're not dealing with people, which I'm sure we can all attest to knowing happens a lot, who try to avoid the the tax when they are truly residents, for lack of a better word. And that objective level is meant, intentionally meant to be a pretty high threshold to make sure that people c- could meet it if they wanted them to. So I think that that objective uh, level is taken pretty seriously by by the New York state. Re- remind me, what is the what's the New York state income tax rate and maybe to put a little bit of color on the idea of like if a person was trying to not be a resident in new york why might they not want to be a resident yes new york for a single single filer with above the brackets range but the first bracket is eight thousand to seventeen thousand right i mean if you're talking that's the brackets for um single filers eight thousand or above eight eight thousand five hundred and then a joint filer is seventeen thousand that's at 4.5. That's the lowest possible rate that you're talking about. But when you go into the above, let's say $200,000 for a single filer or $323,000 for married couples, you're at the 6.85% rate. And then you even jump to 8.8%. 
So for above a million, let's say, or almost two million, it's pretty. It's a pretty high, high threshold that people are understandably trying to avoid, depending mm-hmm. on circumstances. Yeah, and if you're, I mean, if you're paying tax in in two states, typically you get offsetting credits for the tax that you're paying. But then effectively what that means is you're going to pay tax at the highest rate as between the two states. So for example, the Arizona, the maximum Arizona rate, not including a new surcharge that we have is four and a half percent. So if you're trying to be an Arizona resident, trying to pay four and a half percent, but New York still sweeps you into their system. And now instead you're paying an eight plus percent uh, tax rate in New York, you might get credit for having paid Arizona tax, but you're still going to pay an eight plus percent uh, tax on your at a state level on your income taxes plus then on top of that you got to pay your federal taxes so it it can be a, a a jarring experience if you were not intending to pay tax that high I actually too just read an article where I saw uh, the New York Senate just passed a bill or they're they're trying to pass a deal where they're going to raise the income tax rates even more. So it'll go from like the 8.8% to like a 9.6% being the highest tax rate, which that's, again, like to your point, Brent, when you're thinking, all right, I've got state income taxes and now I've got to pay federal income taxes. I mean, when you're at that rate, you're getting close to 50%. And that's just really, really high. I mean, you're definitely in a high high state income tax rate. Yeah, that's tough. I mean, nobody nobody is quite at California level at 13.3% on people with over a million of income, but eight is pretty high. Uh, Arizona's not too far behind that because with our sur- our surtax, your tax rate could be somewhere around 9%. So, um, you know, we're somewhat on par with New York in that sense, uh, but it very well could be that you wouldn't have to pay that surtax in Arizona, but you'd have to pay a very high rate a much higher rate in in New York if you had not sufficiently uh, disentangled yourself from New York as uh, Deborah is is describing her own efforts to do the same. Well, and more more than that, you know, even if you you can also be a resident for those objective standards for part of a year, so you're not domiciled, mm. but part of a year you are a resident, and then as a non-resident, you are subject to tax on anything that is New York sourced income, which is familiar. We see this also in Massachusetts, the concept of any kind of income that is sourced from that state, they're going to try and tax it. You know, And so again, you're at these very sort of objective standards of, of making sure that any instance that you have a connection or an entanglement with the state, there's a tax implication involved. Right. Okay. So then uh, focusing a little bit more narrowly, how about in the city? What is different if you're a quote unquote resident there? So the city is is really every income earning individual, estate and trust residing or located in New York City has to pay the city's personal income tax. So taxpayers who live in New York City for only part of the year would can also calculate that based on the number of days. But it's a pretty broad threshold. That's that's really your location. If you are there or present, you are subject to this tax. And the, those it's a little less of a hit in terms of the the rates. You're talking about three point zero seven eight percent to three point eight, but it's still an additional tax on top of a New York state tax, because for many people, if you are paying New York City income tax, you are likely also paying New York state tax. That's not always the case. There's lots of people who work in the city and commute from New Jersey, Connecticut, neighboring states for this very reason to avoid the hit of the New York state tax, but the New York City income tax can still apply to them. So you could, uh, just to put a little bit of a, of a 
finer point on that. If you're commuting into the city, so you're spending time in the city, um, but you're not domiciled in the state of New York, you might escape New York state taxes, but then still have to pay New York City city income taxes on top of your Connecticut or Rhode Island uh, state taxes. Is that right? Is that accurate? That's correct. It it there are ways, and I'm sure people with much more technical accounting knowledge, I'm sure, to get out of that. But if you are earning income in New York City, there's there's usually a hit of some sort. I would also say that New York City's income tax is based on your New York State taxable income. There's a link uh, to that. So there's there's really no deductions that are specific to the city. So you don't get any deduction benefits that are city or isolated to New York City's taxes. The deductions are only on the state level. Mm, that's interesting. And you and I suppose then you also don't get like credit for having paid state income tax somewhere that then offsets your New York City local income tax like you would as between two states like Arizona and, and New York. That's correct. To my knowledge, that is correct. There's no offset. Yeah, that's pretty tough. That's a harsh rule. <laughs> I guess that that's the price to be paid among other many prices, uh, micro prices and not so micro prices to be paid for the pleasure of living uh, in the city's boroughs. The cost of living is the other one. Yes, <laughs> uh, it is a fantastic place. So uh, I guess it, there's a reason a lot of people live there. Well, let's let's change gears a little bit. Let's assume that somebody then dies. And um, so. As with most states, Arizona does not have a state level estate tax. So the only estate tax that applies is the federal estate tax. That's even true in California, as all of my California colleagues like to tell me, um, even though California has the highest income tax rate. But that is not necessarily the case in New York. It's a bit of an outlier uh, in that regard. So the state of New York does have its own basic exclusion amount, which influences who has to file a New York estate tax return. So the estate of a New York resident, so of, of someone who died a New York resident, will have to file if the federal gross estate value plus the amount of includable gifts, which we can talk about in a minute, exceeds the basic exclusion amount for New York as of the date of death. For non-residents, it's similar. An estate of a New York non-resident also has to file a New York state estate tax return if the estate includes any real or tangible property located in New York state and the amount of the non-resident's federal gross estate, federal, plus the amount of any includable gifts exceeds the basic exclusion amount applicable to the date of death. So it's so again, there's this distinction, which was true for individuals between residents and non-residents. And so non-residents, sort of similar to the concept of income that is sourced from New York, it's really about real or tangible property located in New York. Whereas for a resident, it's just about anything. All of their property is applicable when it comes to the New York estate, state estate tax. Um, the concept of includable gifts, sort of in terms of calculating whether or not the return is actually required, which is, again, only if the value of the estate exceed, exceeds those thresholds, so the resident's federal gross estate plus includable gifts, that's a concept where in New York, well, it's actually from the Internal Revenue Code, but New York applies it that any taxable gift under Section 2503 of the Internal Revenue Code has to be added back if it was made during the preceding three-year period ending on the decedent's date of death, and it's not already included in their federal gross estate. So that's sort of just a clawback provision to avoid uh, the concept of giving gifts right at the end of life. 
Um, there are some exceptions to that. It actually doesn't apply if the gift was made when the decedent was a non-resident. So there's some forgiveness for being a non-resident. It also doesn't apply between before April 1st, 2014. It was also abandoned between the dates of January 1st, 2019 and January 15th, 2019. And it also doesn't apply if it's real or tangible property that really is entirely outside of New York at the time that the gift was made. So there are some exclusions to this pretty, pretty intense clawback provision. But that's the, that's the general concept in terms of how how the the state tax works. And I think again we're seeing a distinction between residents and non-residents, but also this theme of still trying to make sure that anything that's actually situated in New York or that seems like it has sort of a New York aura to it is going to be taxed in some capacity. So that's that's the basic structure. And are the are the rules for residency for state tax purposes the same rules that apply for income tax purposes? So when you're trying to figure out if you're a resident, it's the same like the 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 domicile test plus this basically six month test. That's the concept. Yes. It's sort of similar to other states where an individual is treated the same way as or a trust or an estate is treated similarly to an individual. There are some other rules that have to do with where trustees are located. You know, there are ways to avoid being treated as a New York trust. Um, But again, you know, those concepts are it's really about your presence in the state or a trustee's presence in the state or a beneficiary's presence in the state and different ways of calculating whether or not that presence is sufficient enough to warrant being treated as a New York trust. Um, The same an estate is a little bit uh, less complicated because it's about the decedent themselves as opposed to a trust, which can have multiple parties that are taken into account. But it's similar concepts and similar thresholds. Yeah, which is such a which is such a uh, difficult thing in the sense that, like we were talking about, you could have someone who is domiciled in another state and then potentially trip up on one of these six-month rules uh, in New York and then die. Um, and rather than just their New York real estate and tangible personal and tangible property located in New York being included in their New York estate for estate tax purposes, it could be basically everything they own. Um, and that's a, a harsh reality. I think for for some families, at least in our experience, for some families to realize that um, the rules in New York are are so wide ranging and broad as far as the estate tax goes. Um, And it's a little bit of a shock for our clients who don't live in a state that has an estate tax to realize that in another place they don't do things the same way Uh, that I don't think that necessarily means that New York is is. Um, sort of like backward uh, or has invented something new because it used to be that most states had an estate tax. It's just that states have gotten rid of their estate tax over time uh, and New York has not. They're among the few that are holding out. Um, But just to make sure that everybody understands that the bookend uh, works perfectly, Hawaii has its own state level estate tax. So, you know, we kind of got both sides of the country taken care of in that regard. Yeah, so New York is at 5.9 million. So I think one of the interesting things has been dealing with planning for New York estates when they're at the New York level, but not at the federal level in terms of exemption and the value of the estate and how that affects planning, especially because, and I actually don't know if this is entirely unique to New York or if other states do this as well, but there is no portability election in New York for their estate tax exemption amount. So that can also cause some decisions that have to be made, especially between deciding on portability when it comes to the estate tax exclusion amount versus marital deduction, which which 
which way do you go? And also that can depend on how much you think the value of the, the estate will increase after the first death. So we do have some interesting challenges when it comes to estate planning in New York with that in mind. I, I actually don't know. I'm thinking about it if there are other states that have that as well. But that is a very New York problem to come across. Yeah, I can't I can't say that I know either. Um, many states match up their state exemption with the federal exemption. Um, so unlike New York, which is decoupled from the federal exemption, many states match up with the federal exemption. So I, my understanding is that in states that follow the federal exemption, effectively, you get the benefit of um, federal portability elections. And just for, for anybody who's not sure what that means, um, portability is a concept that says if a spouse passes away, their estate is not sufficient to use all of their federal estate tax exemption, which as of right now today recording is $11.7 million per person, um, then the amount that they do not use can in, in essence be inherited by their surviving spouse. So the surviving spouse picks up the most recently deceased spouse's unused exemption amount, they added on to their own $11.7 million. And then that's their total federal estate tax exemption. So in New York, if uh, you had one spouse die, they didn't use all of their $5.9 million New York level exemption. Uh, it sounds like their surviving spouse is sort of out of luck. They don't get to pick up the unused amount. It just goes unused uh, and is lost forever. That's correct. It definitely makes uh, there's there's a reason that I was thinking about New York planning. There's so much of a question about whether you want to have an automatic credit shelter trust or a bypass trust that's mandatory versus something that you decide at the time to disclaim because exactly because of that issue. You know, is it better to park that 5.9 million if you can, you know, immediately automatically and ensure that that at least is preserved? Or do you say, let's wait and see what we do? Because again, if we go above that amount and we're in the federal point, then are we, where are we losing out or what's the, the best decision? to be issued to be made ahead of time or at the time. And those are sort of debates that happen a lot in, when people are kind of on the cusp or somewhere in the middle between the two. One other area I thought was really interesting in, in looking at New York law is this concept of the cliff, like the estate tax cliff. And I, I don't, I'm not aware of any other states that do this. I don't know, Brent, if Deborah, if you guys have heard of others, but it was just so weird to me. And so the, the way I, I understood it is that you have, like you said, that that $5.9 million exemption amount um, for estate tax. But if you're a state, when you pass away, let's just say you're a resident of New York, let's just make it simple, and your estate is more than 5% of that exclusion amount, the $5.9 million, then you're completely subject to estate tax. Like you don't get that exemption. You don't, you don't get it at all. It's just entire. Also, it's crazy to think that you know, if you're what just slightly above it, you know, in the, in the six or seven million dollar range, you just barely pass that by. Now you're paying estate tax on all of that six or seven million. Whereas before, if you were right at that cusp, you could have avoided quite a bit of tax. To me, I thought, wow, again, just another really harsh rule. Um, and just again, a really difficult place to be in on a planning perspective. And, you know, really when let's just say an individual or a couple is, is, you know, getting up there in age and you're looking at your assets, you've got assets that are appreciating quite a bit. Like what, what do you do to make sure you don't fall off of that cliff and have to pay estate tax on your entire estate? 
No, that's that's definitely the famous cliff. Everyone talks about it. You know, that's that's it's pretty harsh. I, I don't know what to, I've never heard of another state so far having that concept because it is all of it. It's not the amount that exceeds, as you said, it's your entire estate. If it goes over, it becomes taxable. Um, and I think, you know, to sort of bring that concept back, if you're at a point where a lot of times when I draft for New York, the, we sort of the formula that we use about what you're going to put into some kind of bypass trust is the lesser of, right, the New York estate tax amount, exemption amount at the time, or the federal to, to ensure that you do maximize that use to just to clarify the earlier point, you maximize and make sure that 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 amount is parked away so that you don't risk losing it because of lack of portability. And and then those questions about whether or not you're just slightly above that amount, you know, it's you, it's hard for couples. In a younger age, it's really hard also for couples to predict which one they'll be or where and now where we'll be because, of course, there's potential changes for all kinds of uh, exemption amounts with the new administration. So it could be that some of this becomes moot, but it's, it is a question and it's been a, a reason for, for a lot of flexible planning. Yeah, it just adds new variables to an already very difficult uh, environment to plan in. So if you think about just the federal environment we've been in, at least in the last two years, where the exemption was either going to be something north of 11 million, or it was going to be, say, five or three and a half million. So there's a huge difference in exemption amounts, which would capture many more people in the federal estate tax. That makes planning for that possibility much, much harder. And then when you layer into it, uh, the state level estate taxes, it just compounds uh, the issue from a planning perspective, makes it much more difficult uh, to pick and choose the right options, which maybe that's maybe that's the answer is that there isn't necessarily a perfect option. It's just best guesses, uh, most reasonable assumptions, and then and and then you you make your choice and live with it. Well, another new piece of legislation that was from well relatively new from 2019 is that New York actually requires that Q-tip elections be made on the New York return. So it used to be that that was that was a federal return question. So if you had to file a federal return, that's where you filed your Q-tip election. And if you didn't have to file a federal return, that's it was just not necessarily part of the New York requirement. It was not part of the, it was sort of more cohesive with the federal rules. But now you are required to do it directly on your New York return for anyone dying after April 1st, 2019. Yeah. So you just can't ignore that uh, that requirement. And, and the Q-tip elections typically have to be filed on a timely return. Is that is that true in New York as well? That's correct. That's correct. So what about um, one idea that I've I've heard people suggest uh, in other contexts of, say, taking for a non-resident with property in New York, taking that, if it's real estate, say it's like a condo or apartment um, in Manhattan, and then contributing that to some sort of entity like an LLC or a partnership, and then taking the position that, well, what you own is the entity interest, which is intangible, and New York estate tax only applies to tangible assets and real estate. I like that idea. You know, I'm so hesitant to sound so enthusiastic about it, but I really appreciate the, <laughs> the, the creativity to the it. The creativity wonder, meter is high. Yeah. You know, I wonder, because I'm thinking about how we draft so often 
for real property sections in New York, you know, we make sure to include in the definition of real property any interest in a cooperative, right? So people have long have been trying to dump those interests into a tangible real property concept. So I wonder if that would move against the concept, not that that's law, but common practice to include that in how you dispose of your real property. I wonder if that would work against the argument. But it's true. It is an intangible asset. Of course, that would definitely send a lot of real estate in New York into a tailspin because in terms of taxes, because almost everyone, well, not everyone, but many people live in co-ops and a lot of the condominiums in New York operate in the same way as a co-op in terms of your interests. Now, yes, you have you have more of a property ownership in a condo, but they're starting to almost look like co-ops in terms of the way that they have agreements and interests in parts of the common spaces. So I wonder how that would how well that would be received. You know, it's it's actually one of the reasons that so often New York New York estate tax planners don't recommend funding a revocable trust during life is because of the restrictions of putting condos and co-ops into trusts in New York. They're very very strict on that. And so the idea that you're going to avoid probate is almost is oftentimes not such a guarantee in New York because if you can't put your oftentimes the most valuable asset you have like a home in it then why bother funding any of it. So it's funny to think about where real estate and how it's defined and and the the trip ups that it causes but I have also heard that that's changing in New York because of the backup in surrogates court. So maybe more people will be funding during life. But <laughs> I do to back to the idea. I like it. I mean, I wonder again, I wonder how well that will be received. It's sort of a seems like a snowball for a lot of real estate to be outside the scope of the taxing arm. Yeah, I'm a little bit dubious of it in in some instances because I think there's a there's a chance of the taxing authorities looking at that transaction transaction and saying, you know, we kind of see what you did here and we're going to pretend that this LLC or partnership really is an interest in real estate um, and not give, essentially not not treat the LLC or the partnership as a genuine business entity that they have to respect uh, for tax purposes. And there's maybe some precedent from that um, in the concept, a similar concept that exists in the international transfer tax space, where for a non-resident, non-citizen of the U.S., you have only made a taxable gift on transfers of U.S. real estate and U.S. located tangible property. Sounds very similar to the New York rule. And so some people had taken the position that, well, all then you have to do is take your real estate, put it into like an LLC and then gift away the LLC interest and a transfer of an LLC interest is intangible. It's not real estate, therefore no gift tax for the non-resident. And I I know that there's some pushback on that point, uh, at least in the eyes of the IRS, where the IRS views that entity interest as, as real estate really. Um, not as an intangible asset that can avoid the gift tax. And it seems that that concept is not too far off of this New York context where perhaps you could see a taxing authority that's really trying to raise money, particularly from groups that are wealthy people, um, not being excited about entertaining its validity. You could also see where that lack of excitement would especially be applied to any entity that is seen as a pass-through, just in terms mm-hmm. of how pass-throughs are diff- are treated differently than a non-pass-through entity. So I think, and most people are not going to, well, I don't know what most people do, but I would imagine that setting up a, a, corp, a C-corp just for the purposes of ensuring that the asset isn't, you know, tangible. I, I wonder if that would not be as popular in terms of the logistics involved or 
who else you'd have to get on board with the plan. But um, I just wonder about the pass-through treatment, if that might also be a reason for it to not be mm-hmm. so so positively seen or welcomed. Yeah, and there's a whole, yeah, there's a whole nuanced thing about the treatment of pass-through entities uh, for federal tax purposes that uh, we don't have to dig into and bore everybody with here. Maybe that's another podcast episode, but um, yeah, I'm kind of with you. I think the creativity level is very high on uh, that kind of planning context. I think it probably really, really depends on the uh, facts and circumstances, but you know, I could be wrong. Well, I think that uh, that's a really helpful window into uh, New York estate taxes. Again, like state level estate taxes maybe is a little bit foreign for a lot of people because most states don't have them. Um, and maybe a, a interesting little window into how planning for somebody who has assets in New York or is a resident in New York is maybe just that little bit more complicated um, because you do have to take those issues into account. Uh, well, I really appreciate uh, you helping us out on this topic, Deborah. It's one I think of pretty general interest, so uh, I think people will enjoy learning about it, as I have. I was happy to help. I was going to say that community property to me still is boggling my mind. So <laughs> as complicated as this all sounded, I think community property states have a whole other level of complexity. So yeah, we've got our own thing going on. It's true. Mm-hmm. It's true. It's very strange. Well, uh, we will we'll see you around, uh, and thank you again for uh, joining us. Thank you. Hey, listeners. Thank you so much for spending time with us. Rachel and I both really appreciate it. We've really enjoyed doing the podcast. We're trying to do our best work and bring you valuable and useful information, and I hope you feel the same way. And if so, please subscribe to the podcast, leave us reviews, uh, subscribe to our blog if you want to follow us and see the sort of things that we write about, and also follow us on social media, at Wealth and Law, basically everywhere that social media is. Thanks so much.